0: All right. Can you hear me? Good. Okay. Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. All right. If you have a Bible and you're not in 1 John chapter 2, I'd encourage you to go ahead uh, and turn there now. If you are new with us this morning, my name is Hunter. I am not the pastor here, which means I get to say whatever I want to and my income is not affected. Just kidding. Um, Just kidding. But uh, we are glad you're here. Just want to say Uh, From CTK and from the pulpit, we're glad you're here and we hope that you are encouraged as God's word is preached and proclaimed among God's people. Uh, But before we dive into what Lance just read, uh, would you bow your heads with me and pray? Father, would you create space now? For us to silence and still our hearts enough to hear and see you in all of your glory as you actually are. God, help the size uh, of who you are and the sum of who you are and the expanse of who you are in our minds grow uh, to the reality of the God that you are. God, that we would see You high and lifted up and we would say, God, woe am I, for I am a man and a woman of unclean lips and my eyes have beheld the Lord. God, and we would see that the only thing that makes us right with You in this moment is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God, and we have access to the God of the universe by and through the person and work of Christ alone. And so we come before You humbly God, as servants, but more than that, as children to behold You, to sit at Your feet and listen to You. God, even as Mary demonstrated in the Gospels, Lord, I pray in this space that You would fill this room, You would fill our hearts, and You would fill our minds with joy, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. So I pray that You would build up and stir up and shore up the foundation of faith in our people through joy that comes from the presence of God and God alone. We ask this in Jesus' sovereign name. Amen. All right. so I've titled this sermon A Simple Christianity because I think that's what this text, and I think you could say the entire book of 1 John is all about. John wrote this book for two primary reasons. He wrote it to assure the saints of their salvation and to defend the church from false gospels. And John's means of accomplishing both of these aims is to reteach his audience what it actually means to follow Jesus. And so John is asking his readers in the first century and us this morning to drop our preconceived notions, to forget all of our assumptions, and to loosen our grip on everything that we think it means to follow Jesus. And in doing so, he invites us to relearn what biblical Christianity actually looks like. And we get to learn it from a guy who walked With Jesus for three years bodily on this earth, and now even in his old age, scholars think that John is probably in his 90s when he's writing this letter, and he is still pouring himself out to fulfill the Great Commission and to advance the cause of the kingdom of God. And So John gives us three questions to consider to help us identify if we are actually in Christ this morning. I'm going to ask these in the first person. John would ask this this way. He would say, hey, do you this? But I want us to ask it, do I this? I want us to ask uh, kind of questions of self examination, questions of self assessment. And it would be a good practice after the sermon uh, to go to people you know and love and who can be honest with you. And you can ask them to ask these of you as well, or ask them uh, if you are doing these. And so the first question and kind of the first point this morning that John would have us ask ourselves is Do I know Christ? Do I know Christ? The second question we should ask is, am I living in the light? Am I living in the light? And the third question would be, am I grounded in grace? Am I grounded in grace? So first, we should ask ourselves, do I know Christ? You could ask the question, and you may be wondering, do I love Christ? That would be a good question, and it would be a good question. But that is not the language John uses here. John actually never, not once in this letter, I read it cover to cover, just just. To clarify, just to make sure I'm speaking the truth, he never once in this letter writes about uh, Jesus' followers loving Jesus. Instead, he talks about knowing Jesus. And that's the first test that John holds up as to whether or not we are genuine believers. Because according to Jesus, and therefore according to John, real believers know Christ. They know Christ. And the word for know here in the Greek is the word ginosko. Gnosko. It is used to convey an intimate kind of knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge that the Bible speaks of in Genesis chapter four, when Adam knew Eve and they conceived a child. So it does not get more intimate than this, right? This is an inside out, all is laid bare way of relating to Jesus, and is where we are naked and unashamed, where we are fully known and fully loved, and this is what it means to know Jesus. But How do we know that we know Jesus this way? That's probably the the better question to ask. How do we measure that? How do we quantify that? And the answer to that question, according to John, is by our obedience. It's by our obedience. John says how well we know Christ is directly related to how closely we obey Christ. Look with me at verse 3-6 through Uh, once again. John writes this. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him. So that's what we want. That's our aim there. We want to know that we know Jesus. That's the assurance we're looking for. So how do we know that? John says this, we know Him if if we keep His commandments. So knowing Christ is conditional in this text. And the condition is that we obey Jesus, which means we can memorize all the Scripture we want to. We can tithe on over half of our gross income. We can wake up at 4 a.m. to have prayer meetings with God every day of the year, but if we don't obey Jesus, none of it matters, and we don't know Him. That is what the Scriptures say very clearly, because John says that's the only real evidence that proves that we know Him, that we love Him, that we follow Him. And this this is not just John's opinion. This comes straight from the mouth of Jesus Himself. John 14, 15, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. But Jesus says very plainly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A few verses later in verse 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them or obeys them, he it is who loves me. But this is not just a one-off from John. Uh, One of the scariest scriptures, in my opinion, in all the Bible, is found in Matthew chapter 7. It's near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And starting in verse 21, Jesus says this, He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Which begs the question, well, Jesus, who's going to get in then, right? And Jesus says, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, a.k.a. who obeys my commands, because Jesus and the Father are one. So to do the will of the Father in heaven is to do the will of Jesus or obey the commands of Jesus. He then goes on to say that on that day, on judgment day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? We drove out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. They have a lot of spiritual party tricks. And Jesus is going to say to many of those people, I never knew you. Word in the Greek there, I never gnosko you. I didn't have an intimate knowledge of you and you didn't have an intimate knowledge of me. You knew the bio. You knew the Facebook information. You knew, you knew all the statistician uh, stats there is to know. right? Your favorite player on a team. You knew him that way. But you don't have a personal relationship with him. You don't know him inside out and he doesn't know you that way either. <clears throat> and so the basis for whether or not we know Christ is do we do the Father's will And do we obey Christ's commands? Now finally, I want to ask one more question around this point, and that's the question of why. Why is obedience to Christ required in order to know Him? And the answer, I believe, is because the only way to truly know Jesus is to know Him as King and to exalt Him as Lord. When we use the phrase Christ the King around here, we are not putting Jesus on par with Philip of England. Right? Jesus is not a spiritual figurehead. He is not a theological throw pillow. No offense if you like throw pillows. My wife loves them. <laughs> but that is not what Jesus is like. Jesus is the reigning and ruling king of the cosmos who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is present tense, ongoing right now. Like The reason we're sitting here and the room is still is because Christ is speaking it, speaking it into being moment by moment. That's straight from Hebrews chapter 1. So Jesus is not a spiritual show pony. He is the Lord of all. And if we can't relate to Him like that, which demands our humility before His sovereign authority, then we can't relate to Him at all. Jesus is not our homeboy. He is Christ the King, and that's all He is. So obedience to Christ isn't optional for the disciple. It is a prerequisite. John makes this explicitly clear in verse 4. He says this, look back at, me, uh, back at the text with me. <clears throat> He says, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. I love John's, he's just brash, right? Like he's not pulling any punches. And the reason John can be so bold is because discipleship to Jesus really is this simple. But don't confuse simplicity with ease. Simple doesn't mean easy. It just means simple and complicated. And so if you actually know Jesus, you will actually obey him. And if you don't obey him, then you can't possibly know him. And if you say you do, John says you're a liar. But John says, whoever keeps his word or obeys his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. So not only do we know Christ if we obey him, but what John's getting at here with this idea of the love of God being perfected is that as we obey Jesus, God's will is being done and he's causing his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. It's the last iteration of the Lord's Prayer. And so John has made it uh, clear that true disciples obey Jesus' commands. But that may bring up another question, and that's which commands are we to obey? All right, what's John talking about ha- here? How do we make sure we're covering our basis? How do we make sure that we are actually in Christ? Um, so if you will skip down with me to verses 7 and 8. Um, we're going to skip kind of 5b through 6 for a second. We'll come back to it. But look with me at verses 7 and 8. John says this. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. His truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So that's a bit confusing, perhaps. So what John is referencing here when he talks about an old command is Jesus' answer in Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus is asked by a teacher of the law, Which command is the greatest? So Matthew 22, the teacher of the law, essentially a first century Jewish lawyer, he comes up and he asks Jesus this question, right? Which command is the greatest? And without hesitation, Jesus says, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And without skipping a beat, Jesus attaches, and the second is like it: it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says all the law and prophets, all the Old Testament they hang on these two commandments. Now the reason John says this is an old command is because Jesus here in his response is quoting from the Old Testament books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Right, So these are ancient commands. These are not new. Jesus has not come up with these, and he is applauded by the teacher of, law, of the law for his answer. Uh, but at the same time, Jesus and now John are hitching those commands from the Old Testament from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and he's hitching them to Jesus' new command found in John chapter 13, verse 34. So John 13, we're at the Last Supper. That's kind of the scene of John chapter 13. Jesus has just got done washing his disciples' feet. He knows he is headed to the cross. And in verse 34, Jesus looks around at his disciples and he says this, he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this is the new command John is referring to. And what, Jesus, or excuse me, what John is saying here when he says that this is both an old command and a new command is that Jesus' new command in John 13 doesn't nullify the old one. He simply quantifies it. Jesus took the idea of loving your neighbor and he embodied it. He put flesh and blood on it and he showed us that loving our neighbor isn't measured by our emotions, but by our willingness to lay down our lives for one another. That is how Jesus defines love and that is the command we're called to obey. Then John says that the truth of this command is quote unquote seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's no surprise, probably shouldn't be a surprise, that Jesus fulfills his own commands. But John also is saying here that the saints in 1 John were also fulfilling these commands. They were loving each other as Christ loved the church. And as they did this, and as we do this CTK, the reality of the kingdom to come breaks through the darkness of this still depraved world. That's what John means when he says that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John says that because Christ has come, this is a fixed point in history. Right? We can look back at the objective evidence of God's love proved to us most fully in the cross of Christ. Because that has happened. Nighttime is over. And while it still may not be light outside yet, a new day is dawning. This is happening. The clock is ticking and the sun's rays are climbing up over the horizon and soon everyone will see its light. And as we love each other as Christ commanded us and as Christ himself showed us, we point people to that reality and we lift up the light of the world that all people might behold him. Now, that being said, let's circle back to verses 5 and 6. And John writes this, last part of uh, point 1 here, I promise. And this is the longest point of the sermon, just FYI. So y'all can breathe in a second. All right, verses 5b through 6, John says this, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now I want you to notice here the similarities between verse 3 and verse 6. Right. So in verse 3, John says, If you know him, you will obey him. Verse 6 says, If you abide with him, you'll walk as he walked. They're similar but not the same. John is using here a literary device called amplification. Amplification, right? So he's taking, uh, the idea here is John is taking a theological foundation and he's kind of circling back around to it in his letter and as he does, he's just kind of laying another layer of bricks on the foundation. right? He's building upon what he's already kind of started, so to speak. It's kind of like math Right, like if you learn math in, in high school, uh, this is dangerous. This is not on the page. But if you learn math, like I remember going through math classes year after year, and I'm like, why didn't they just teach us this from the beginning? Like they could have covered all of this in like two years of school, right? And they just like take it one step at a time, really slowly. That's what John is doing here in verses three and verses six. This is amplification. So let me find my place. Um, so what John is doing is he's coming back around to this idea is this point is that those who know Christ not only obey Christ's commands, that's verse 3, but they also obey and adopt Jesus's lifestyle. That's verse 6. That's what it means to walk here. To walk means to live. And this is what it means, we read Matthew 11 earlier, when Jesus says, take up my yoke and learn from me. Right? He's calling his disciples, and it's why he called his disciples to follow him. He didn't just call them to read about his life or simply believe with them in their minds, right? A lot of people believe in Jesus. He calls us to a whole life learning and obedience, which means that while Christ is our propitiation, as John says in verse 2 of this chapter, He is also our pattern of life. Jesus is our example. He shows us how to live in God's world, in God's way. So I think a good question for us to ask ourselves Um, is are the disciplines of Jesus my disciplines, right? Do the rhythms of grace that formed and shaped the life of Jesus, do they form and shape my life as well? So do I have purposeful work? Do I take intentional rest? Am I in the Scriptures often daily to some extent in one form or another? And this might be a hard one, but do you spend more time on social media than you do in the Scriptures? That's not about being legalistic. It is about cultivating love. It's about uh, putting your heart down a trajectory to love Jesus for the rest of your life and obey Him that you may be found in Him. Do you spend time with the Lord in prayer and not just simply talking to Him, kind of throwing up your laundry list of, of requests, but do you take time to listen to the Lord as well? Are you immersed and integrated in community? And do you have a regular pulse of silence and solitude to withdraw from the noise and pace of our world and to simply locate yourself before God, your maker. Those were the disciplines of, G- disciplines of Jesus, and they should be our disciplines as well. They should shape our lives if we are in Christ. And if they don't shape our lives, the truth is that we know him less for it, or we may not be in Christ at all. So that's the first question to consider is, do I know Christ? The second question to ask ourselves would be this, am I living in the light? Am I living in the light? Look with me at verses 9 through 11. John says this. He says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves uh, their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and they walk around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So John is taking this idea of light and darkness here from verse 8, and now he's playing it out in the context of Christian relationships. And John's point is simple. It's that real believers love one another, right? Nothing earth-shattering. Real believers, again, this is simple Christianity. Real believers love one another. Pretenders? They don't. Posers? They don't. Wolves in sheep's clothing? They do not. They compete with each other. They envy one another. They belittle one another. They, they do lots of things to one another, but loving one another is not one of them. Now, the Greek word for love here is the word agapo. Can you say agapo? I can feel you guys going to sleep on me. Agapo. Um, so it means this, to welcome, to entertain, to love dearly, or to be fond of. And it's actually much closer to the New Testament idea of hospitality than it is our current culture's understanding of the word love, right? We love everything from our spouse to a bag of Doritos, right? This is not what uh, John means here when he talks about love. And so love, as it is taught here, is more tangible than it is emotional. It's based on the actions we carry out, not the feelings we possess. And so we should be asking ourselves, are we generous towards one another, Are we willingly giving of our time, money, and emotional energy to meet the needs of others? And do we open the doors of our homes and our refrigerators to practically and tangibly love one another? Now, this covers um, pretty much all the meanings of the words agapo except for one, and that is to be fond of each other. may sound a little weird, right? But I think this is an important definition of this word, and it implies two things from us. So first, It implies, listen up, it implies that how we think about each other matters. Okay, The thoughts that you think about the people on your right and the people on your left, they matter. Because it's very hard to love someone that you judge, or that you dismiss, or that you think doesn't like you and you don't give them the benefit of the doubt. On the other hand, if we think the best of one another, if we do give one another the benefit of the doubt, if we choose to trust one another as 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, then we will grow in our affections towards one another. We'll grow in our fondness for each other and we will be ready and willing to practically love one another because we have already loved one another in our hearts and in our minds. Which brings us to the second implication for this word. And that is, to love each other requires that we communicate with each other. It requires communication. It requires speaking up when we feel slighted. It requires asking questions when we feel condemned. And it requires cultivating curiosity rather than resorting to judgment. In short, it requires that we work out our sin on the spot so that bitterness and anger don't have a home in our hearts. Because if they do, they will smolder the fire inside of us. And what was once a flood of holy light will slowly but surely turn to darkness and will trade the fellowship we once had for the isolation and confusion that darkness inevitably brings. And so John encourages us this morning to stay in the light, to love one another well, and to work out our sin in real time so that love is the garment that clothes our corporate body. Now, this brings us to our last point and our last question, and it's this. Are we grounded in grace? Are we grounded in grace? Look with me at verses 12-14. through John writes this, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I'll be honest; when I was prepping for this message, the first two points came pretty easily, and this last one, I was like, "What in the world is that about?" <laughs> like around and around we go. I feel like I'm just in a house of mirrors, right? But from First John one one, all the way to two eleven, right? So up until these verses right here. John has been teaching us what biblical Christianity actually looks like. And you get to verse 12, and John takes this really hard right turn, right? With kind of no communication that this is coming. Just throws everybody for a loop. And he changes the tone of this letter. Uh, He changes both the tone and the nature of this letter. It's as if, to me, John steps out from behind his lectern. He kind of comes out of teaching mode, and he starts to speak to his people as a pastor. And he speaks to them in a very personal way, I actually think that when John wrote these letters, he probably had specific names, faces, and stories in mind. Now, at first reading, it may look like John is addressing three specific populations here. There's kind of three couplets. I think that's the right terminology. I've got like a three by two grid. So you have fathers, young men, and children, right? That's the three kind of populations John is addressing in these three verses. But if you look closer, in the Greek, the word for children here, both times, there's actually different words but both of them are used numerous times throughout the letter of 1 John, and every other place they're used in the letter of 1 John, John is addressing the church as a whole. Does that make sense? Okay, got a few head nods. Nobody's doing this, so I'm going to keep going. All right, so I think when John speaks to children in in these three verses, he is speaking to the church as a whole. Commentators are kind of mixed about this, but they probably love to feel original anyway, so you you can't always pay attention to all of them. Um, but then he does address specifically these older men, these fathers, and he addresses uh, these younger men and younger women. You can, Women, this is inclusive of you too. This is not PC for nowadays, but whatever. Um, and, and so anyway, to the church at large, when he's writing to children, he says this. He says, I'm writing you all, or in Georgia we would say y'all, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He goes on in verse 13 to say this to the children. He says, I'm writing you because we, the church, know the Father. And so John gives the church both the reason and the result of their forgiveness. And he does it by grounding their salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see this most clearly in this little phrase he tacks on there that says, for his name's sake. And so John is reminding the church here that the only reason they stand forgiven the only reason they have access and they know the Father is because of the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Which means that our salvation has nothing to do with us. right? The only thing we bring to the table is sin. We simply create the need. But the forgiveness that we experience and receive and the reality of that forgiveness rests 100% on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, this is good news, not bad. Because it means that our forgiveness, uh, or if our forgiveness were to rest on anything else, it would be unstable, insecure, and we would be unassured of our salvation. So, John assures the church that we stand secure and we stand forgiven because we stand in Christ, and that means we stand in grace. John goes on then to address these fathers and young men. And again, you can include mothers and young women in here as well. And so for fathers, John has in mind here the believer who has been walking with Jesus for probably longer than most of us have been alive, right? They have seen hilltops and they've seen valleys and they have matured and walked with Jesus Jesus through different seasons of their life. And to to them, John says uh, both in verse 13 and verse 14, this one simple phrase. He says, I write to you because you know him who is from the beginning. He addresses the fathers two times. He says the exact same thing both times in these three verses. He just repeats himself. I write to you because you know him who is from the beginning. Now the other group John addresses are the young men and the young women in the church. And these are believers who have had a relationship with Jesus for some time. So they're not new believers, right? They've seen some spiritual growth. They're eating solid food. Um, They are being sanctified but they are not yet seasoned saints. And to them, John says in verse 13, you have overcome the evil one. And then in verse 14, he teases that out a little bit and he adds these phrases. He says, you are strong and the word of God abides in you. So the question is, why does John address these specific populations in these specific ways? And I think the answer to that question is because John is emphasizing to each population the key task for their specific stage of discipleship. Let me say that again. I think the reason John addresses these populations with these specific points is because John is emphasizing to these groups the key task for their specific stage of discipleship. So just like there are specific stages of development in our physical lives, we have lots of kids in here, young babies, and as you come Sunday after Sunday, MC after MC, they go through stages. Right, they learn to sit up, they learn to walk, they learn to talk, they learn to disobey their parents. All of these things, right, as they're growing, and, and it's the same for the spiritual life as well. And understand, this is not linear. Like if you've been walking with Jesus for any time, you know it's like three steps back and or two, three steps forward and two steps back. Right, it's not linear. It's like up and down, fits and starts. And this is a kind of a thirty thousand foot view. This is not super deep. This is not what the sermon is about. But I want to go through this a little bit to try and help unpack these three verses. So, when a person, an unbeliever, repents and believes the gospel, right, their sins are forgiven, they are born again, and that person, this baby in Christ, is usually just ecstatic to be alive. right? Everything seems brighter, like you just turned up the brightness on the screen of their life. They are just loving everything. Everything is a gift, right? And it's fantastic, and it's a miracle, and it is to be celebrated. But as we grow and mature in Christ, we come to realize that we are not all we imagine ourselves to be, right? We realize that we are engaged in a war both internally to put to death what is earthly in us, to use kind of appalling phrase, and we're engaged in a war externally to fight the three-headed monster historically called the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is both an exciting and an exhausting season of our lives, Right? There are giants to be slayed, there are walls to be toppled, there is water to be walked on. And for those who are in the stage of discipleship, it is good to remind them, you have overcome the enemy. Because there are going to be points, and sometimes it's often, when they feel like that is not the case. Right? This besetting sin continues to get the best of them. or they have yet to see victory in a specific area of their lives. Or maybe they're just really struggling to follow Jesus in the moment. And so to this group of believers, John assures them, you have in fact overcome the devil. The enemy has been defeated and the hero is not you in the story. It is Jesus Christ. He is the one who has slayed the villain. And the reason you can take heart in the battle you are currently fighting is because Christ has already won that battle for you. So stay close to Jesus Christ. In Christ, you are strong. And the Word of God, which is living and active, is abiding in you to keep you grounded in the grace in which you now stand. And this is probably where most of us find ourselves this morning. We're probably not babes in Christ, not most of us, not infants, but we're probably not yet spiritual fathers and mothers. But at some point, as we continue to walk with Jesus uh, day after day, year after year, season after season, as Eugene Peterson puts it, for a long obedience in the same direction, we reach the stage of a seasoned saint. And this is where John no doubt finds himself, right, as he writes this letter. He followed Jesus, as I said, for a teenager probably for three years, and he is now in his 90s. Like John has seen it all, and he has the t-shirt to prove it. And, and for those in this stage, they come to realize that the glory of the gospel is not in slaying giants It's not in parting seas, it's not in watching walls come crumbling down. The glory of the gospel is that you get the God of the gospel. And you experience the reality with David that the love of God really is better than life. And you begin to say with Paul that I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And this is what John is reminding the spiritual father and the spiritual mother of here in 1 John chapter 2. He's assuring them that they have the only thing that matters and the only thing that cannot be taken from them. And that they know, like they really know, and they know that they know Him who is from the beginning. And this is and should be the goal for all the people of God. It's God Himself. He's our prize. He is the treasure hidden in the field. And for those who obey Christ's commands, who love their brother and sister, and who are grounded in the grace of God, we have full assurance that we are in fact in Christ and that our souls can rest because we have found our rest in Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brother and my sister in this room this morning. Lord, I pray that this text would bring assurance. Lord, I pray that maybe where following You seems difficult at times, that sometimes it maybe seems confusing, God, the waters seem murky. It seems difficult to see what's the next step, that you would take us back to a simple Christianity, that we would know Him who is from the beginning. Lord, that we would love our brother and sister and stay in the light, and we would remain grounded in the grace that brought us to life in the first place. God, would you be glorified in our body and in the world at large. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.